right club. Be the right club today. Yes! everybody welcome to another be the right club today podcast super excited about our next guest he won 20 times on the pga tour including three u.s opens he won 45 times on the champions tour mr hale Irwin. hale welcome to the podcast well thank you jace good to be with you and hal and uh, i've heard an awful lot about you guys and now i get to be part of it <laughs> well hale uh i never will forget the first time i met you I don't know if you remember the first time we met, but I was paired with you and Jack Nicholas in the 1981 U.S. Open uh, at Marion. Do you remember that? I remember. I Boy, remember. did I start bad! <laughs> and you know, I was I was uh, I was out of my league in terms of uh, whether I felt good about fitting in, and uh, I never will forget this. You know, I tripled the first hole and. I'm, I'm about four over after four and we get to the fifth hole and I got about a four or five footer downhill for par and we'll discuss this in a minute, but <laughs> Jack put it out in front of us and you straddled my ball and stopped everybody. Do you remember that at all? No, I don't remember that. No, you don't remember that. Well, that was, that really mortified me actually, because I was prepared to hit this putt with everybody moving. And I had a built in excuse and you made everybody <laughs> stop to watch me miss the putt. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, I have a question about that. You'd already won you one us open at that point and big, big name. And of course we were all trying to figure out a way to beat Jack Nicholas along the way. And uh, you, you hit it five feet. He hit it 25 feet. The crowd would go nuts when he hit it. And they didn't seem to appreciate your shot or my shot nearly as much. How do you cope with that as a good player? I'm, I'm curious. I want to know because I knew I could tell that bothered you a little bit. Well, I don't know. Is it? I guess uh, part of that equation, I think, is the maturation process that we all have to go through, Hal. Uh, depending on where you come from. Now, I, you know, my college background was football. No one had ever heard of me as a golfer. You know, I won the NCAA my senior year, but that really didn't put me on a map. That just gave me the confidence that, hey, at least I could play with my peer group and perhaps go out and be a pro. Uh, but I, I think I, like you, I, I don't start something that I don't feel like I'm, I'm going to be successful. I didn't just start to be a pro thinking, God, I hope I make it. No, I, I, t t I wanted to be successful, and I was dedicated to that. But I, I knew that I didn't have blonde hair. I wasn't Johnny Miller. I wasn't Jack Nichols. I, I didn't have that whatever it takes. I had dark hair. I wore glasses. Uh, my moniker, if you wish, is former football player. And so I, I knew getting out there it wasn't going to be – the crowds weren't going to be behind me. I wasn't Arnold Palmer. You know, I didn't have that, that, uh, something that was easy to write about. See, the, the writers and the people had to go do some research, which they weren't going to do. Now, regardless of how well I played, you know, maybe I'd be recognized as a good player. Maybe, maybe not, but it was in my mind. I was the guy that I, I wanted to please. And if I pleased the other people, that was great. But I knew that Jack Nicholas, uh, I knew that Arnold Palmer, 
I knew those people were far more famous uh, and at least to that point were far greater players than I. So it was a maturation process. And, you know, I think sometimes the, the attitude that we hold within ourselves about ourselves, what we expect of ourselves overrides anything else. Now, whether I hit it five feet and Jack hit it 25 feet, it, it didn't bother me. It maybe appeared that way because, yeah, you know, I hit it five feet. That, that's a good shot. That's, that's a really good shot. And uh, I always respected everybody with whom I played. You know, I, I tried to learn from everybody. It didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter if they started off the triple bogey. It really didn't matter to me. <laughs> you, you, you have to learn. And I think for me, learning my place in the game, what I could do to help promote the game of golf uh, was the most important part. Well, I, I know this. I was watching every move that you and Jack Nichols made that 36 holes that I was out with y'all because I was also trying to learn. Mm -hmm. And you said something that was very critical uh, that I'm going to go ahead and rehash a little bit. You said you wanted to be successful. You didn't want to just participate at the professional level. No. You wanted to be su successful. And I guess we all deem success at different levels, you know, where we can be satisfied with it. But like you, uh, I wanted to be as good as I could possibly be. And uh, I think the people that, that are actually winners out there, they go out there to be a winner. They don't go out there to participate. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think the, the true champions of any industry, any sport, any industry, they're the ones that want to be the best. They, they want to be as good as they can be. Now, they may not be as good as the next person, but they want to be as good as they can be. Realize their potential. You have to understand what your potential is first. You have to have those. Oh, this is my lofty goal uh, sermon. I don't mean to sound that way, but I think you have to have attainable goals, lofty goals, but attainable. It's a little bit like when you go on the merry-go-round and you, you reach for the brass ring. You know, it has to be reachable, but it also has to be difficult to get. And I think anytime you play the game of golf, that may be the ultimate brass ring because it's never a perfect round of golf. It's, you may get the first prize, but could you have played better? Well, absolutely. Is there not a round of golf or a shot that you fit that could be better? Absolutely. But you have to understand that there's so many things that go into uh, success that you can't be deterred by the lack of it. Because uh, our game has a lot of those ups and downs, mostly downs, but I think uh, that's why I say you, I, to this day, I continue to learn uh, how to be uh, a better player, ultimately, hopefully be a better person, a better father, better grandfather. Those are the things you have to learn. And um, that's what's made the game of golf so appealing to me is, and you know, this as well as I, the, the people we've been able to be around, the cultures we've been able to touch, the things that have been provided to us are immeasurable and if you don't take advantage of those then you're really not doing yourself a very good favor totally how agree you, how you mentioned football um how do you think that that uh played a role in your success as a golfer and do you think that kids today you know there's 
there's a bunch of group there's a, there's a bunch of people that say you've got to be multi-sport athlete to to be great and then now that we're starting to see some research that you know other cultures other countries are specializing early and having a lot of success what where do you fall on that stuff well i i I understand both sides of the equation. I, I grew up as a young boy doing everything that was available. Um, a little town in which I grew up in Southeast Kansas, Baxter Springs, we had a little nine hole sand green muni golf course. Uh, we really didn't have a pro. It was just, my dad would take me out and I'd just hit a few golf balls around. Baseball was the big sport. Mackie Mantle was from that area. Uh, I'd play pickup football with some of the older guys. <clears throat> I might even go, shoot some baskets, just whatever was um, available. So when I got out to Colorado, things got a little more sophisticated. But, you know, in high school, I, I played football. In high school, I played basketball. And then I played golf in the spring. And then when I went to college, uh, the, the football scholarship was a way to get me through school. I'm not saying my parents were paupers, but they didn't have a lot of money. So this was a way that I, I, I really call it working my way through school. And I enjoyed it. I made some great friendships, great teammates. Uh, fortunately, I, I escaped a serious injury, bugaboo. And, but golf was always the common denominator. And, but what I did learn from football is I was undersized. Uh, I didn't have great speed, but I learned that if I did my job, I, I concentrated on what my assignment was. <clears throat> Excuse me, I did it the best of my ability, but that's all I could do. And that carried over to my golf. If I tried the best on every shot, and at the end of the day, if, if that's if I look back and said that shot I really sloughed off, then I should really be upset with myself. But I tried to carry that through everything. And there are probably times where I, I pushed myself too hard. Uh, perhaps I didn't accept that there are things out there that may be beyond my control or beyond my reach right now. But that, that was a part of me. It was always keep, keep going, keep going. And uh, now here I am at this advanced old age of 76. You know, I look back and say, well, that's okay. Because there are some people that don't push themselves to their full potential. And they don't realize what they, what they can give to others. Uh, it's because they're cheating themselves. And therefore, they're going to cheat their family and friends by not giving everything they have. So to me, football gave me the discipline uh, to carry on with what I was doing. It was a big task, but then again, is there a bigger task than going out on your own and playing against the, the Jack Nicholas's, Arnold Palmer's and the Hal Sutton's of the world. I mean, it, come on, really, it's, it's, it's quite an undertaking. You, you better have, you better have some confidence in what you're doing to do that. Would you suggest to your grandson who I know you, I mean, you're pretty, I, the few times we played on the Champions Tour, I noticed your grandson was around quite a bit. Would you suggest to him to play a team sport through high school and then go to golf from there if, if he so chose? I would suggest to any, any young person, uh, young boy, young girl, to do what they want to do and let the parents, let them, uh, encourage them to do multiple sports. I, I get this focus on one sport. But I do think by the, by the time, if you're five years old, let's say, and you're focusing only on swimming or soccer or baseball or golf, whatever it is, by the time you get to be 20 years old, 25 years old, you may be really good, but you may be bored out of your mind. And what's going to become of you if you get your fingers stuck in a car door? What have you got? You haven't got anything else 
to fall back on. If, if that's all you've ever done, you didn't really study in school like you should have, perhaps there's something else in life than just that. And, and I think maybe, and it's just a guess of mine that what we're seeing around the world as far as golf goes, the, the push, the international push, certainly from some of the Asians that are concentrating on these kids playing golf and golf only, uh, they're, they're quite good. And maybe that's a money-making proposition. But when your skill levels drop or your interest drops, what's left of you as an individual? What's left of you as a human being? If you haven't expanded those horizons, then there's, it's a pretty empty shell. I would agree with that. You know, I played all sports all up until I was 16 years old. And the one I never was really on a great team. I was on mediocre teams. And, you know, it really made me appreciate me playing an individual sport and depending totally on me. Uh, because sometimes I felt like I did my job really well playing team sports and we still lost. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it made me appreciate being an individual golfer. So, yeah, anyway. well, I, I, I get that completely. Uh, I, and I, I understand that, but I think that's part of the maturation process is when you go out there and you do your best, regardless of what that score says, you did your best, whether it be on a team or not, that's all you can do. And when you understand that you've given it everything, then I think you can sleep well at night. Now, did you want to win? Of course you did. But some of the, some of the things I think we all have learned, we've learned at least as much from our losses as we have our victories. And, and that's kind of the way I've looked at it. I, I look at my, my performance or a bad shot or how the day went look at what didn't go well at first, but I always try to see what went well at, in the, as my last thought. So I'm always trying to push that thing forward, trying to push it in a positive direction. And if you get hung up in, well, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, in the negativity of things, then it's hard to get positive. But if you continually try and push it to the positive, you'd be surprised what you can do. Hell, you mentioned that you grew up on, you said sand, uh, Sand Green's little Muni golf course. Um, there's been a lot of research about tour players growing up on on easier golf courses than most people think. Did you learn how to how to score at a at a young age? Did you learn how to you know was it was it a pretty easy golf course where you learned how to make a lot of birdies early on? I didn't know what a birdie was, honestly. With <laughs> <You're just laughs> a birdie was something that flew in the air. Uh, no, I. It's kind of hard to put in words. I think it's more of uh, it was a, an experience chase to go out and uh, play with my dad. Uh, but he, he traveled a good bit. So my mom would take me out there, dump me with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I'd, I'd just go out in the woods and look for balls. I'd play a little bit. Uh, there wasn't a pro. Uh, you know, I've never had a lesson in my life from a, from a pro. So it kind of takes you to uh, I was self-taught. Right or wrong, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, just that was all I had. So uh, other than my dad's cutting off some clubs and wrapping the shafts in electrical tape and saying, here you go, kid, you know, three clubs or so, go out there. Well, I, I, I enjoyed it because just what Hal said, I could do that on my own. It was something that I could do, and then I had to account for, for that. And it wasn't until I was 14 years old we moved to Colorado that I – got into a little bit more of an organized, uh, I played in my first tournament I won, and I thought that was pretty cool. 
you know, playing competitive golf and having to keep a score. That was really, really something special. And I think that as much as anything triggered my uh, fascination with the game of golf over these last uh, 62 years. (laughs) So I'm not going to beat this thing to, to a pulp, but I think it's important for everybody at their younger age to understand to do a lot of things. Uh, and that includes school. It includes education. It's not just sport. It's challenging yourself in all endeavors and you will find your way through life. And it's complicated out there. Now these kids are facing some very, very difficult, uh, situations and are they properly prepared for it? Well, I think the more multidimensional you are, the, the better prepared you are. I would agree with that. So here's a little bit of a, we're going to branch away from golf here for a second. I'm curious what you think about Norma's new venture with (laughs) Saudi here for another tour. I mean, the reason why I'm asking you this question, and I think it's, I think it's an appropriate question right now. You spent your life building the PGA tour and you know, the tour was good to us. People know who Hale Irwin is and Hal Sutton because of the tour. So share your feelings about this. Well, I think we can harken back quite a few years ago. and Greg kind of tried to do the same thing. Um, uh, quite a few of us sat in a room out in Sherwood, California. Um, Arnie was there. Jack was there. You know, the two big voices in the room. And uh, Greg laid it out to have this other tour and few, if anybody in that room uh, wanted it, support it. In fact, no one did. Right. And I think Greg perhaps thought that he was going to carry the day, but he didn't. And I think there was he or they, whomever was behind it, underestimated the way you and I feel about our home what made us successful, what helped us succeed. And I feel a little bit like that today, that you've got a lot of money being thrown out there. But is that the way to go? Can you ever replace what someone has given you the opportunity to achieve? Can you go to this new tour? And as inevitable as it may seem, you're still biting the hand that fed you. And I, I'm I'm not in favor of that. I'm I'm I like to think that I will be supportive of those that supported me, and the PGA Tour and the USGA and the people that were behind behind the game of golf for all these years. They are the ones that helped me achieve the success I've had. Now, you can make the argument, well, it's only going to be a couple of years. Well, I'm not sure of that. It may only be a couple of months. It may have great traction, but it's not. It doesn't seem to be the right thing, but ultimately, perhaps it will be a world tour. I don't know how you can mix these cultures together and the time zones together and and make it a world tour without destroying what we've got at home. And that that bothers me. I couldn't have said it better. I completely agree with you. It's just, uh, you know, I'm... You were on the policy board, I'm sure, at some point, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was on the policy board, and I never will forget 
you know, Tim and I used to go round and round about a few things. I was never someone that just automatically agreed with him, you know? And, and, uh, one, one night we were at dinner and I said, Tim, what you don't understand is I never bite the hand off that's fed me all these years. I'm just offering up a different opinion and where it goes, who knows, but you know, I'm not just going to automatically agree just to agree. And, well, I think without serious discussion, nothing ever really flies. You don't get the best out of anything if you don't have the, the best best of both worlds and have some sort of discussion. But then again, ultimately, I thought it has to come back to what is the right thing to do? And, and everybody has a different answer, perhaps. They might have the same answer, but everybody has their own answer. And I think uh, at least years ago with this question when it was raised by Greg, uh, everybody had the answer, no. Now it's being raised again. The money is much bigger. And I think a lot of people are seeing dollar signs. And they're forgetting that the, I almost saying patriotism. I don't mean that in the, in the sense of being a USA kind of thing. But this is our home. This is where we made it. And we should do our level best to make sure this continues. Now, if that happens to mix in with an international crowd, that's fine. If we have, I don't know how much PGA Tour tournaments have, if they have 38 or let's call it 40 events, if now they only had 30 or 35 and you throw in five or 10 international tournaments, which you've almost got anyway, if you throw in the, uh, the British Open, then you could throw in some other big events around the world. Uh, then you would have your international tour, but I think it's right here in the USA where we still have the best golf. Well, one of the reasons why I think that's pertinent for you is you won on all six continents in your career. So you traveled the world. That's not an easy thing to do, is it? Hell. No, no, it's not. It's, it's no, it's not. Uh, when you, when you make that commitment, um, I think it goes back to where we started with this discussion, Hal. It's, it's, uh, you want to be the best you can be. And I don't know if I could be the best if I didn't try my try against other players in their country, instead of them coming to my country where there might be a language problem, might be a culture problem. There might be a time zone issue. It's, I have to test myself and go to them. I have to go see what it's like. And, and plus there's a curiosity of what I say, what does, what is Africa like? What is Asia like? What's South America like? You know, what's Australia like? If you don't go see those things, and I think, and you have the opportunity to do it, I think you're shorting yourself some uh, some interesting experiences. So I, I'm curious because I think you guys offer both of you offer very unique perspectives on all this stuff. If you're the PGA Tour, what do you do? Like, what's the what's the what's the next step? Um, I mean. You hear what Bryson was reportedly offered to, to, to go over there and play. You hear Phil come out and saying that, you know, he says the PGA Tour is greedy. Like, what, what's, the, what's the next step? If, what would you guys recommend the PGA Tour does? Well, I, I think you have to continue with a dialogue. But at the same time, I'm not sure that we, have, we should have, <clears throat> excuse me, we should have addressed this perhaps uh, years ago and, telling our players, educating our players as they come onto the tour, send them through kindergarten and elementary school and high school before they get here, whether it be rules, whether it be, this is how it works. 
and it's not just money. I think we failed to do that, but okay, that's water over the dam. What do we do about it now? I think you still, you still have your core of, of leaders out there, whether leading or not, you have the top players, whomever they may be that should speak out and, and make their preferences known because people will follow them. No, you take Bryson, uh, whatever he chooses to do, that's certainly his business, but is he going back on the people that help support him? Will, will that support then erode and will he be the person that he wants to be? I guess it comes down to you want, do you want to fulfill your destiny of whatever that is? Uh, Hal did, I did, Chase, I think you did. I think the people that are out there that are looking at this and having questions about it are, are raising the, the issue of, well, are we completed here? Is the USA done with golf? Are we farming it out? Are we supportive of that? No, but I think the players that are going out to do this might not fully realize the impact they're having. And that's why I think those, those handful of players or leaders, whomever they can either self-identify or be identified, need to speak up and take a stand and say, this is the way we feel. And if it's, we're going off to Saudi Arabia, Arabia, okay, that's what they want to do. Then that's probably a big chunk of the U.S. tour is gone. You know, if they're going to say, we're staying here, that doesn't mean we might not go out for the occasional tournament somewhere, whether it be in China or Asia, Australia, it doesn't matter. Go to the Middle East, fine. But stay home and be supportive in the majority of your tournaments and, and keep those tournaments alive and well. So anyway, I don't, I don't know if that works or not. That's my opinion. Well, do you think I, I'm? This is a loaded question that I'm about to ask. Do you think from Norman, you, Hal? I'd never think. That. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do would do you think Norman is trying to do this because he wants to better golf for the world, or do you think he's doing this for personal reasons? I always, I, and I'm going to give you my answer before you say yours. I always felt like Norman had Greg had a, uh, his own personal reasons for doing it. He didn't get, you know, he was, he didn't have the best relationship with Tim Fincham and they were constantly against each other. And, and, um, uh, I, I just feel like there's a personal vendetta in this as far as Greg is concerned. Well, the, I, I don't disagree with that. Al. I, the, there may be, uh, a, a part of Greg that, uh, um, has felt uh, slighted by not getting the recognition that he he maybe thinks he he's uh, owed. Uh, obviously, he's been one of the better players in the world. You know, there's no doubt about that. Uh, whether or not what he's trying to achieve is going to be notable in the history of golf, uh, you know, I I. I've struggled to try and I'd like to hear Greg in a, in a room after a couple of beers, you know, that's what I'd like to hear is instead of what we're reading in the newspaper and hearing, I'd like to, to hear what he's really saying, but there's been some contentious times with Greg through the years through, with a lot of people. And, 
personally, I don't have any great animosity against Greg at all. I just, I question sometimes the motives uh, other than maybe it's the dollar. I don't think he's certain for money. Uh, maybe it's the greatness that he, he thinks he should have had. Um, I've always kind of put him in that category. One of the best players, certainly out of Australia, uh, but one of the best players who kind of played the tour. He's, he's, he, he had that. He had that thing. Uh, he didn't, he didn't win at the masters, which I think would have been a crowning uh, victory for him with his two British open championships. If he could have won a masters or something else to put the exclamation point in there, then we might not be having this conversation. But I do think there's something that wasn't satisfied in his career. Maybe this is what he's trying to do. Well, this is an interesting thought, too. You know, uh, you've been very relevant as far as golf is concerned. One of the biggest winners of all time. Uh, it's hard to ride into retirement when you've been real relevant. And you're smiling as I say this. Uh, you know, some people can't handle it you know, being less relevant. You got any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I, it's, it's hard, as we spoke before the show, it's hard to be uh, competitive, and then all of a sudden those fires die. There's always uh, a flame. And I, I suppose there wasn't a flame, the gas would build up and it'd explode. But there's always that fire, I think, in, in anybody that's ever played this game at a high level. Jack had a hard time stepping away from the game. Arnie certainly did. Uh, we all, Gary Player, all the great players, and I'm not going to put myself in that category. I'm just going to put myself in the category of there's still something burning in there. But I realize that my skill sets aren't what they used to. My age, my body is not what it used to be. So I know that there are reasons why I can't go out and expect to play like I used to. That's the rub because you go on a golf course and you do the same thing. You go out there, you see the shots and boy, that's what I should do. And you pull the club and you think, whoops, boy, was that the wrong shot? I can't get there with this club or I can't shape it the way I used to. Uh, and, and all of a sudden those, those 68s and nines become 78s and nines, just like that. And, and that's not acceptable at, at a competitor. Now, if you have the ability to Turn that switch and just say, I'm going to go out and have fun. I, I get that a lot from people. Just, just go play and have fun. You know, fun, and you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, is competing. It's coming down those last few holes, having a chance, getting that adrenaline. And if you win or not, but that's what you're there for. You want to be in the mix. I don't want to be a footnote. I don't want to just kind of go out there and, well, I had a great tournament to finish 40th. And that's not what I want to do. Yeah. Hell, this is great stuff i hope people uh i love chatting with you about this i've always respected your game always learned something from you all the time and uh that's why i wanted to get you on here well i appreciate it i you know I, hal i always look back to when you were Ryder cup captain we were sitting up there whistling straights and uh you were you were struggling with who to get on your team who was going to be the your, your picks or who is going to give you what you needed. Uh, and, and I think that that is the, is the game is that we might think a lot alike, although there's different, but there's other players out there that are, if you look at their record, they're equally good, but what's in their heart. 
And I've always said, if your heart and your mind are working together, you're going to be successful. But if you've got debates going on all the time as to what's the right thing to do, and I, I try to tell every kid I ever see, try to make the right decisions. You know, you'll make some wrong ones, but try to make the right decision. And I think that's what we've all tried to do. And I, I know you were struggling with that up there at uh, Western Straits was what's the right decision to put the right people together for this U.S. team? And I, I respected that because that was a tough one. Yeah. As, I mean, I put Jay Haas and Stuart Sink on there, and I yeah. think they were great additions to the team. You know, we just – I don't know. A lot of division. You know, we've had a lot oh, yeah. of division players. Yeah. Well, you know, I volunteered to be on the team. You didn't pick me, so, you know, I'm, I was a little hot at you. <laughs> well, I, I want to tell you this. I almost didn't pick you. Oh, really? I almost did pick you. I wanted to pick. In fact, I had it right down. You were the third person that I was looking at. You were playing <laughs> fantastic, and and I almost did pick you. Oh, boy, that just set golf back a long time. You're a smart well, man. I, mean, I guess I was the guy with the shoulders broad enough to accept everything because I put Tiger and Field together. So I might as well have gone ahead and picked a senior tour player. Well, you know, I, I tell people this all the time, the best golf I've played in my life, the best executed, best played, and most confidence when I was 52 years old. I was two years of being on the then the senior tour. Uh, for whatever reason, it just clicked. Uh, there wasn't a shot I could play. I hadn't lost any distance whatsoever. Uh, it was I, I was putting really well. I made just a tiny little adjustment in my putting. And, uh, man, I was there for a year and a half. I didn't miss a putt. So what was while I'm thinking about it, what was the tiny little adjustment? Everybody needs to hear that. Well, it, you remember a, a former PGA president called Frank Cardi. You remember Frank? Frank was out of New York, uh, the Met section, and uh, he was one of the. I was on the policy board at the time, and Frank was one of the PGA officers on the board as well. And we were just talking one time. He said, "Have you ever thought about putting your right index finger down the shaft?" And I. You know, I've always, even yesterday, I was out messing around. I put cross-handed, I put split grip. I, you know, I just, I always go back to my original grip. But I, I was standing on the fifth green at Hualalai in our opening tournament. And I wasn't playing that. I mean, I was playing well. I wasn't putting that great. And I thought, and I'd practiced with my fear, not completely down the shaft, but pretty close. I had about a 20-foot putt. Then, well, let's just try it. Went right in the middle of the hole. And for the next year and a half, I didn't miss a putt. It's just that little adjustment kept the putter blade from either opening or closing, kept it online, and it kept my hands from getting a little flippy, if that's what you want to call it. And I had a, a real solid stroke at the ball, so I was making great contact with it. I was keeping it just online enough. And, boy, it just, it just felt great. And after, and I say a year and a half, because then – it started feeling not as new, not as good. And I started, uh, you miss a putt or two, and now you got a few questions. I still was putting very, very well, but it wasn't like I, I, had, I had found the pot at the end of the rainbow. And then I'd spent all that gold that was in that pot. Now I had to go find another pot. Uh, but I still go to this day. I'll go out there and I'll put that finger down there, and it just feels so good. The only thing it didn't do, I, I wasn't real good at long putts because with that finger there, it kind of kept the club from getting back a little farther. 
I couldn't take the backswing wasn't quite because my finger was pushing against the shaft. If you, if you follow me, I just, uh, that finger down there, just, you know, 20, 25 feet and in, it was great. Getting out there at 35, 40 feet, I continually came up short because I just couldn't get it back there enough to get the proper pace. But I was hitting the ball so well, I was never outside of, you know, 25 feet. I just, I was just hitting the ball well. So I had a lot of short putts. But when the game kind of slips a little bit and you get a little bit longer putts, you don't get quite the same results. So anyway, those are all my excuses. Now, now all of our listeners, all of our listeners are going to go out today or tomorrow and, and try, try <laughs> thinking about the shot. They're all going to be doing it. Heller and said it. Um, so how you won three times, you won three U.S. Opens, arguably the toughest conditions um, always kind of favors really the best players playing the really the best, best that week, right? You've got to hit it great. You got to have a great short game, all that stuff. One of the questions I always ask Hal was, you know, why didn't, why didn't he think he had more success at Augusta or where he didn't, didn't win, you know, majors at what, what's your reasoning for winning three U S opens, but maybe not winning at the British or the PGA or, or the masters. Well, I had several chances at the British, um, uh, I was leading after three rounds in 79. I just won the U.S. Open, and now I'm leading after three rounds over there. And, and I really wasn't playing that well. But, you know, if you win both Opens on each side of the pond, wow. And there is so much pressure. I, I didn't really feel the pressure from the outside. I felt the pressure because I wasn't playing that well. I mean, I just was scraping it around uh, and just very managed my game as best I could. But that Sunday – it was a little cooler. It was a little windier. And I've never been a really good player in that kind of stuff. Uh, plus, I was playing with Seve in that round, and he went on to win. But I guess uh, part of the – and these sound like lame excuses now that I'm talking about it, but one of the problems I had in playing the British Open was that I, I played many of them wearing glasses. And before all this climate change where they played shirt sleeves now, it was sweater weather and raining sideways. That's the weather we had. So playing with glasses on was always kind of a distraction. Plus, I was never a really good cold weather player, you know, versus Tom Watson, who I thought was one of the best cool cold weather players I've ever seen. He kept that swing long and beautiful. But uh, the Masters, I think, my the way I played the game, and it's a little bit like Hal, is that I played the game to hit the ball as low as I could, but as high as I had to. So uh, let's just say the first hole Augusta, my drives, they might get to the top of that little hill back where the old tees used to be. Might get to the top of that hill, but they'd land just short of the crest. So I'd get maybe a five or 10 yard roll. The guys that could carry it another three or four or five yards, they would get a 20 or 25 yard roll. So, you know, I've, I think I had five years where I finished in the top five in a row. Uh, I tied the course record. So it was like, I couldn't play it. It's just that I think it was more difficult for me to go out with my game of playing within myself, where I think Augusta, sometimes you have to kind of let it go. You've got to let it go and, and reach for those uh, longer holes with maybe a, a drive. That's not quite as straight, but, it gives you a little shorter shot. My game wasn't predicated on that. My game is predicated on U.S. Open conditions. Keep it in the fairway, hit them, hit the greens. You know, be aggressive when you feel like it, but you don't beat yourself. 
Well, Augusta, you have to go out and beat others. And pretty much the same with the PGA. Uh, I think by the time we got around to the PGA, and at least when my family was growing up, I, was, I wanted to be home there getting to start school, and I wanted to spend the last few weeks of summer with them, and I got distracted. But uh, the U.S. Open and the PGA of America, those championships, they were probably set up pretty close to the same. Uh, the grass in June, wherever we played, was a little more aggressive, a little fuller. By the time August came around, the grasses were a little bit uh, in the wilting process. But uh, no excuses. I just think my game was predicated more on U.S. Open type of golf courses. You know, the, the Pinehurst Country Club or uh, golf course conditions where you had to keep the ball positioned, play shots. Um, I don't know how he drove the ball longer than I, but he, he played a lower shot. He played a boring hook shot. And I, that's, that's the kind of shot that looks really well at a British Open. Um, but it might not work that well at Augusta, even though the shape right to left is good. The height may have not been to his liking. So that's why I think he, he played well at TPC and he, he, he played well at those kinds of courses. But correct me if I'm wrong, Hal, but I, you look at guys that won, most of these guys that have won of these venues, they're higher ball launchers. Um, they get just that little bit extra that if you're hitting a five or an Indian green versus a six or a seven or 72 holes, that's, that's a big difference. It's interesting. You thought I drew my driver. I drew my irons all the time, but I, most of the time hit a little fade with my driver. Oh, so, come on. Texas. Everybody hits a hook in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody hits a hook. Uh, you know, you won three times at Hilton Head. Mm -hmm. That doesn't surprise me at all when I was looking back. You know, Harbortown fit your game perfectly, didn't it? It did. It was my first win as a pro. Uh, boy, back in those days, and we first played there in 1969, and uh, Arnie won. I believe it was Arnie. And then Bob Goley won the next year. Both really good iron players, especially Bob. And at the time, I remember thinking, this is the hardest golf course I've ever played because it was just – the golf course, they really didn't have any development around it. It was the fairways. Then it became sand and leaves and, and alligator country. Uh, it, it was, it was, you know, that hanging moss coming around and Pete Dye being, you know, such a terrific architect in my way of thing, had those branches hanging over trees and where you didn't expect them. You had to really maneuver around that stuff. And that's what I think fit my eye. I, I like that. But I won there, and uh, my first win was there in 71. My second was there in 73. And then my last one in 94 was there. So uh, I, I really enjoyed playing it now. I played it, oh, gosh, maybe 10 years or so ago, just on an offhand outing down there. And I couldn't believe how it had changed. You know, the, a lot of the trees that were hanging out were gone. The development is cleared out a lot. It's all grass now. There's no sand anywhere. Uh, it's it's the bunkering has changed. The, the green has has contours in them now. Before they're just small, little, relatively flat greens. Well, not now. Different. Well, most everything that we used to play on is different than it. Oh yeah. Be so. Uh, you won Memorial twice. That's another. I, I, it's funny I, of all the successes that I, you know, knock on wood that I've had, uh, I've lost twice in playoffs there too. Really? Uh, 
I lost to Kenny Perry one year and then the inaugural one to Roger Mulby. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, you know, it, uh, it was a place that I enjoyed it. And I, I think it's a mindset, Hal, because it's not, we're talking about that course fit my game. I think it was, hey, this is Jack Nicholas's place. And I got pumped up for that. And I think it was something that it's uh, where the, the mind hits the road. You know, it's the rubber hits the road, my mind hit the road, and I could take off when I got that little extra incentive that uh, Jack always brought out at me. I love playing with him because when you're playing with your best, man, you, you, you tune it up. That's the fun. And I think that's what it did. It was for me, it was a place to, to go. You compete field, but hey, this is Jack Nicholas's party, boys. Let's let's get it on. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, in my opinion, behind TPC, it was the best conditions for, I mean, he, it was player related. In other words, yes. the practice facility was great. Uh, the locker room was fantastic. You know, they just took care of us. Jack wanted everybody taken care of very well. And yeah. so we all went there with a good attitude. When we got there, we might've left with a bad one, but we, we yeah. had a good attitude getting there. Well, you know, the weather was always critical there because that time of year, it, it can get cool. It can get uh, wet. And I remember the year that uh, we played, I think it's the last round when Tom Watson won. And I go back to that. He, he put, shot like 69 or something the last round, and it was miserable weather. I think the next best score was maybe 72 or three. And everybody was mid-70s and into the 80s. And here's Watson up just strolling under par. What a, that, that, that might go down in my mind is one of the best rounds of golf ever played yeah we, uh, we had him on the podcast we were talking a lot about the british opens and stuff and he he kind of finally admitted he's like i grew up in kansas city like i grew up in one of the worst places to grow up in to play golf with the wind and the elements and he he uh, he admitted to being able to handle that just because of because of all the all the the awesome weather he got to play in um i do have a i have a question about you said something about you were self-taught do you, how did you handle yeah. how did you handle when you were when your swing got off like when you knew it wasn't right how did you get back to back to your basics well that's chase that's just what I, did. I went back to basics usually if my game was off well let's, let me start over i knew in the very beginning i didn't have somebody that i could turn to other than let's say hey hell take a look see where i'm aimed you know okay you're aimed over here okay go fix the aim but short of you know, getting somebody that was a swing coach, much like today, everybody seems to have one today, and a launch monitor, and a, well, we go, never mind. I looked at the shot. What did the shot tell me? Okay, if the, if the ball started right and went right with a fade, then okay, my, the path of the club must be from the inside out, and the blade is open to put impart that spin so the initial launch was to the right okay that's the path is on that and now the spin is taken to the right okay now what do i need to do to get that path back just a little bit to the more square and get the proper ball flight so i taught myself that way being in sports i think i had some athletic ability and i kind of controlled my body at least i think so that's the way i did it i i used uh the mistake or the shot, the previous shot to quote fixed the next one. So I could make those adjustments on the golf course and not have to wait to, <laughs> to get in and see my coach. 
Uh, and that's the way I, I, the way I learned to play at, uh, like I said earlier, I wasn't a high ball hitter. I could, had I hit the ball a little higher, I could have been a little longer. But as Hal knows, those old blotta balls and the, the wooden heads, you just you just didn't crank on those puppies. You had to keep them in play. And so for me, it was a matter of controlling the ball, putting it in a lot of fairways because I could I could hit good irons, and I would rather be a club back hitting a controlled iron than trying to be a a longer driver hitting a hard something or other. So that's just the way I taught myself and right or wrong. Uh, that, that, there just weren't any pros around, let's put it that way too. There, I didn't have access to a teaching pro. I didn't have the money to start with, but I didn't, just didn't have anybody around. So once I got started, it was me and me alone. So I'm curious about this, Hale. I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear it first. Uh, I tell these kids around here, I was forced into having to hit it hard, never chose to hit it hard. I bet you played golf that way. Well, you know, I asked Tom Weiskopf one time, Hal, uh, when he went after one and I saw him hit one, one time, I'll just divert a little bit. Cause it's an interesting story about Tom. Cause Tom could always drive it farther than I, but when we got into the irons, we were the same length. And I never could figure that because, you know, Tom's a big guy, creates a lot yeah. of club speed, but he did carry that into his irons. Uh, albeit a really, really good player, but if he'd have kept that same tempo, I think, with these irons that he had with these woods, he'd have probably been the world beater we all thought he'd be. But anyway, the old CBS Golf Classic. Tom and Bert Yancey were playing as a team and Howie Johnson and I had been put together as a team. And we were going around and, and Bert and Tom had had success there. They may, they may have been the defending champions, but we all missed the 12th hole. At, this is at Firestone South. All missed the 12th hole, all pitched up. Everybody missed the putt. And I've got about a six foot putt, seven foot putt to win the hole and get to square. Well, I make the putt. Well, we go to the next tee. And you know that 13th hole, you got the big tree out there in the fairway and dog leg right. And we all hit it out there. Tom takes this tee shot and he launched it over everything, knocks it over that tree. Now, I had never seen anybody, A, attempt it. And if they did attempt it, make it. He's up there where they drive it now. He's up there with a pitch to the green. And so afterwards, I asked Tom, I said, Tom, how do you do that? He says, well, I just try to take it back a little longer, a little slower and get it set a little farther back. And then I let it go. Now he's got the, the taller frame and the longer swing to do that. But that that's, I had quite thought of it that way. I just tried to hit it harder, but in his, he tried to go slower at the top and then come down. So throughout my career, I thought, okay, if I needed just a little bit more, it didn't matter if it was a wedge or a driver, that's what I thought about. It wasn't, wasn't my go-to shot, but if I had to, that's what I did. And that's one of the tips that you, know, you pick up, you learn from somebody and his game and my game were radically different, but you learn little tips like that. So to take that to your question, uh, I never really hit the ball hard simply because it just was not the way I learned. I, I didn't know how to, as a kid, uh, it, it just wasn't there. I didn't have the need to do that. 
So I learned to be more of a control player. And look at, remember Jerry Hurt. Jerry Hurt was a big guy, big broad shoulders. Nick Faldo, big guy. They didn't really hit it hard. They kept the ball in control. And you look at those two guys and wow, they, they should have been some of the longest players on the tour, but they were control players. And especially Nick, and he, he's a big man, but not that he couldn't hit it. He could, but he chose not to. I, I chose efficiency over length. And I think that's what you're saying you did as well. I, I got less efficient. The harder I swung, the less efficient I got. Now, we played with wooden clubs. We played with clubs that weren't as forgiving as they play with today. The kids growing up today, these clubs are forgiving. And, I mean, you know, if I my son was trying to play, I'd tell him, hit it as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. And I, you you probably would say the same thing. But that's not – we didn't have that advantage when we grew up. No, no I, I look at these young people now uh, – there's a, a young kid out here I just saw yesterday, and I, he's high school, and he's swinging so hard at it, just coming, and I'm thinking, boy, that hurts to watch. It hurts my back to watch this. But when he hit one, he smoked it. But he probably only did that one out of five times. The other four were, you know, reload or not going to find that one or little skitters along the ground. Uh, hopefully he'll learn, but at the same time, it – I don't care who you are. You can't swing full out all the time. Now, Bryson, he's trained himself to do that. He's a, he's not a little guy. He's muscular. He can get it done. But boy, when I see that action, I just, I guess for me, it just, my body's never been perfect. Uh, I had a few back issues. It just flinches every time I see these kids swing as hard as they do. Yeah. Oh, you played in a lot of pro-ams. Um, what's one mistake that you, if you could eliminate from all the, all the, you know, bad mistakes that amateurs make, what would it, what would it be? Oh, there's three of them. I mean, I got it right now. Cause that's <laughs> perfect. I, there's three of them. First of all, it starts out right away with alignment and, and, and throw body posture in there, but alignment, almost all righties tend to aim too far right. And Consequently, the old brain, if it's working, says, okay, we've got to come over to hit it back to the left. Well, they just continue hitting a bigger and bigger slice. So I think alignment is probably right off the top of the, the, the list. Two, and right alongside of that, is underestimating or overestimating, excuse me, how far they can hit the ball. Okay, 150 yards, well, I hit an eight iron one time. Well, you were downhill downwind and you happened to smoke it. Now it's your uphill into the wind, you're going to hit an eight iron again. So I think they, they need to take more club because where are most golf courses, where are the bunkers in trouble? Front left or front right? How about if you hit it one more club, you're going to fly over that stuff. So your target's bigger the more you hit. So take more club. Swing within yourself. Take more club. And the third thing is judgment around putting. Uh, well, you know, hey, how how's this break? Well, right to left? Really? It looks left to right to me. Well, I say, well, look around the screen. Where's the mountain or where's the ocean? Where if you poured a glass of water on the screen, where's it going to go to? Look where the architects put drain pipe. You know, look for those little things that might give you a hint as to where the, the putt breaks. So I think it's just poor judgment on the greens. Uh, it doesn't take any extra time. It just be aware. You know, most people, they have fun. They just jump out of their cart put their beer down, jump out of the cart, run up there and putt. Okay, that's good. But if you want to get better, then you kind of pick up on these little things that 
They're right there in front of you. All you have to do is from your cart to the ball is look around and say, oh, there's, okay, there's Pacific Ocean. There's a mountain up at the break stores of water. Uh, well, there's a drain over there. Oh, maybe it breaks this way. You know, it's just little things you can pick up on. And that, those three things right there. Every time, every time I play in a pro, almost every player is the same way. Hey, tell us about uh, the last round at Wingfoot when you won there. Survival <laughs> test. Oh, it was survival from the get-go, Hal. Uh, we had just played in Philadelphia the week before, and I, I'd had a good tournament there. And, and I, I drove up there with uh, Leonard Thompson, and we got to the golf course on Monday. And I can't remember if we played a practice round together. I think we did. But, boy, when he came back in after that round, he scratched your head. My goodness, how are we going to play this golf course? The rough is just so hard, so deep. And the greens are fast. Uh, we, we think greens are fast now. Okay, take the fastest greens now and throw them at Wingfoot in 1974. That, that's the way they were. Fairways were narrow. Uh, but boy, the doom and gloom in the locker locker room was just palpable. I mean, you could feel it. You could hear it. It was everywhere. So I'm thinking, my gosh, you know, you just – just beat 30% of the fields or 60%, 70% is already quit. They've given up. And she, all you have to do is beat about 30% of the guys here. And who knows, you might have a chance. So that was my, uh, my slogan all day. Just keep it under the hole, put it in the fairway, keep it under the hole. I don't care where the flag is. I'll take a 30 foot uphill putt every time over a 10 foot downhill putt. Because word got out on the very first hole where Nicholas putted it off the first green, made himself, I think, a six on the very first hole. Well, you know, that must be pretty tough when Jack Nicholas puts it right off the green. So I think that's the way the whole course played throughout the week. It was just uh, get your par and feel really good about it. A par was like a birdie because you're going to make bogeys. Just don't make those other things. Because you, you're not going to make birdies to make up for them. You, you just can't offset two bogeys during the day with five birdies. That's not going to happen. You're more than likely going to have at least five bogeys and maybe two birdies. Maybe. So you're going to have to look at over par score. And I think that was so hard for a lot of people to rationalize. And, and, and maybe their egos were bruised. I don't know. But it was, uh, it was tough. It was, uh, I've never been so exhausted after a tournament, then with just the pressure of the open, but just the golf course itself just wore us out. Wingfoot's a great golf course, isn't it? But I, I played it last October. I went up there. Uh, I was up with the Met Golf Riders and went out and played Wingfoot, and it kicked my tailpipe every time I turned around. <laughs> I think I shot like 43 or 4 on the front nine, but I was curious to see – when Bryson won there a couple of years ago, that they kept showing these over overhead shots, and it looked different. The approaches to the greens looked different, and sure enough, they've they've moved some of those uh, green or bunkers, excuse me, that kind of fronted, and they moved them out, and kind of made almost false front approaches, and uh, the rough wasn't nearly as deep, and they've taken some trees out, and I'm not I'm not saying it's an easy golf course; it never is. But that was the big change is that that opened the entrances up so the players weren't quite as uh, aware of having to hit it in the fairway because they could hit it in the rough and have a chance to roll it up onto the green. 
Now, in 74, if you hit it in the rough, you just went back to the fairway because that long stuff wrapped around the hosel, as you well know, and you just hit it dead left. So the question was, do I aim it way right to get it back to the fairway? Do I try to hit it to green and hopefully hang on and it doesn't go into the left rough again? So it, it was uh, decision time. You, there were so few balls that got into the, the rough that got to the green, much less on the green. So it's a lot of sand play, a lot of pitching out of that stuff. That's why I say hit it in the fairway. Boy, you just had to put it in the fairway. Hal, uh, Hal and I talk a lot on here about mindset, um, really about being present and having precise, you know, pre-shot routines and accepting the misses and accepting the results after the fact. For somebody that won 65 times on the PJ Tour and the Champions Tour, you, all, you obviously fought some – some, I would say the same mental demons everybody else did, but you did a good job of kind of throwing them away and, and, and keeping your focus and staying present and being grounded and where your feet are and all those cliches. But are there any tricks that you could give for our mini tour players listening, listening at home or, or even some of the, some of the junior players that we work with, like, how do you handle your nerves? How do you handle when your brain starts playing tricks on you with three or four holes to play on the back nine, you know, all those, all the little things that we golfers face. Well, I think we, we touched on it here earlier, Chase, uh, when Helen and I were talking about the thrill is being in the hunt. And if nerves and anxiety is part of it, but embrace it. That's why you're there. And you'll find more about yourself, not only as a person, but as a golfer, when you embrace that and find out who you are, what you do under the gun. And, and I, I think it's, uh, like you say, it's a cliche, but what I found for me, and, that, and that's why I go back to my athletic career before I started playing on the tour, was that I had been in a few of those things. I had kind of been there under the gun, in, arguably on, mostly on team deals, but if you're at the free throw line, or if you're having to hit that pass, or you're the last guy to make the tackle, or whatever the situation may be, it's kind of the same thing. Do you have the confidence in yourself to succeed? And if the answer is no, well, then maybe you better find another sport. Maybe you better find something else. But if you're, if you're willing to say, you know, I'm going to give it my best shot, then, then you're ready for success. It will not come. Somebody's going to put it in a nice little present, put a bow, give it to you for Christmas. So that's not going to happen. You're going to have to go out and fall off that horse and get back up, fall off that horse and get back up, fall off that horse and get back up. But someday you're going to ride that horse and it's going to feel so good. But then you're going to ride the horse far more times than you're going to fall off. And I think that's what happens. You keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying to succeed. Then that becomes the, the measure of success. Now you, you up the ante, okay, here's the next time. And I, I've always described golf as kind of like stairs. You go along for a while, and then you, oh, there's the shot I've been looking for. And you get it. And you go up a little bit. And then you stay at that level for a while. Oh, here's the next situation. Oh, I got that. Up it goes again. So it's just a whole staircase. It's not a straight line. It's not up and down. Up. It's staircase. And if you find yourself doing something like that, accepting what you, you've got that day, and that's what I tried to do. It, it didn't matter. Sure, it mattered. But I, I tried my best all the time. And there were the days that was good. Absolutely. Were the days that was not so good. There were more of those, but 
that's that wasn't me. That's not the way I was wired. I was wired to go out and say, okay, Hal Sutton may have the lead by five, but I can kick his butt. You know, then he wins by 10. But you know what? I still tried. You know, that's the best I could do. And he was better that day, and I applaud him for it. But that's that's the kind of attitude that I think we saw in Arnie and Jack and Gary and, and Lee and Tom Watson and all the great players. Uh, they they didn't back up. They played their best at the best of times. Hale Irwin was certainly one of those guys, too. You know, I never saw those bad days out of you, Hale. I think every time I played with you, you always played great. So, Oh, you were incentivizing, Hal. You got me going, baby. <laughs> I don't think I had anything to do with it, Hale. I think it was just a God-given talent. You know, one of the – I, I do have a closing question here that I think is really important. Really important for today, too. You know, I know whenever I first went out there, people would say things to me like, uh, he, he's a good player, but he'd be better if he could do this. Or he'd be better if he could do that. And I always wanted to learn how to do that better. And I actually would go see people that I thought could help me do that better. You already said you didn't do that. How could you have the that, – that's an inward tenacity that you thought, I can do this. I'll do this on my own. How, how were you able to keep that attitude? Well, Al, for me, it simply was I enjoyed watching all players. It wasn't just Jack. I couldn't swing like that. You know, Jack had the flying elbow. I couldn't swing like that. I couldn't swing like Arnie. I, I, I didn't want to swing like Lee. Uh, there are all these guys that I watched and I said, okay, that's what they do well. Pick out something, whether it's their grip, whether it be the position at the top, whether it be their stance, their posture, you, you name it. Uh, you take a Lee Trevino and you take an Al Guyberger, two different bills. George Archer, the way he putted. You know, there's always something that these really good players did. That's okay. If I can identify that's what they do best, can I do that? So I'd go home or I'd go to the practice team and I'd try it. And if it didn't work, okay, well, maybe it's an influence. Maybe it's just a thought. But that's the way I built up my, quote, resume, if you wish, of ideas was to watch others and, and try and do what they did in my way. Because not that I, I just, I didn't have all the answers. But the answers were out there. And it was just a matter of finding them, putting them bogey, and then sift through them and see which ones would work and which ones wouldn't. Well, I applaud you. You know, so many people always want to cast judgment on players and tell you what you're missing. You know, uh, most people want to tear you down instead of make you look better, you know. And uh, I'm sure you've suffered from some of that where, Someone would say, well, Hale Irwin's a really good player, but if he could do this, he'd, if he could hit it higher, he'd hit it longer and he'd win more golf tournaments. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but you know, then I'd go back and say, you know, I, I can't hit it higher. That's as high as I can hit it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna work with that. And if I have to hit it higher, well, then I'll I'll shape it. I'll shape it in there some way. I'll I'll play around the bunker. You know, that was my answer. Yeah, well, I wasn't as smart as you, Hale. I guess I didn't go to Colorado. <laughs> they wrote an article about me that I would never play well at Augusta because I couldn't hit it high enough. And, boy, I went out and started trying to hit it higher, and it changed my whole game for a while. 
it just wasn't me. I couldn't be that guy. And I mean, and it, I tell you what, it, I had a mental block about playing Augusta. I could not hit the shots. And <laughs> anyway, there it is. But, but there you go. I, I, it's just, uh, you know, there, there isn't, well, there's one shot that I could not hit. And I, I'll describe it when we're talking about Augusta. I play with this fellow, Jack Nicholas, again. And we're on number two, and we've both driven a fairway. When he's, he's down the hill, maybe 10 yards past me. And the flags in that way left part of the, the green. Well, the shot for me, I can't go up the green, but it's hit way over to the right, you know, into the gallery and pitch up the, the length of the, okay, I hit it right where I wanted to, the gallery, ball runs in there. So Jack's, he's down there and he's looking at the shot, looking at the shot, and I'm thinking, well, what's he thinking about? And he pulls out a one iron. And I think, I guess he's just going to try and hit low and run it into the bunker and have a little bunker shot and try to get it up and down. Off of that lie, you know, downhill and up in his face, he hits a one iron straight up in the air, hits it over the top of that tree, or not the top of it, over the edge of that tree to the back edge of the green, has maybe a 30, 35 foot putt for an eagle. And I'm thinking, how do you do that? How do you take off of that lie, hit a one iron and do that? So fast forward to a couple of years ago, I'm with Jack and I brought this shot up and I said, how do you do that? What were you thinking? He says, oh, it's just the shot. He didn't explain it. He says, that's just what you do. Well, that's why he's the greatest to ever play the game because he had that ability in him to hit that shot. And for me, it didn't even enter my mind, much less being able to do it. But that's what he could do. Well, that's what great players do. Tiger Woods does a lot of that same stuff too. You know, he hits shots yep. that most people would never even think about. Yep. And, you know, you think back, you you played a lot of golf with Savvy Ballesteros, maybe one of the greatest musicians, I mean, magicians that ever played the game. Uh, oh, yeah. He was a wizard well, around the green. He? He, he, he played music around the greens with that chipping and putting. There was no one, no one that I've ever played with nor heard of that, that could match up with Savvy. You put him in a trash can and say, okay, take a five iron in there and get it up and down. He could. Uh, the guy was unbelievable. And just a real quick story here. Playing with our friend Greg Norman at Augusta. He's buried it in the back bunker in the 12th hole. And it's a little bit on the, the back slope and a little bit in his face, but it's, it's a plug lie. And the flag's on that kind of the right part of the green a little bit. And he's in there. He's up and down, up and down. I'm thinking he's just going to chunk it and try to get it in the front part of the green, maybe get it in out of it and make four, try to get four. And he's up and down and he swings at it. And you can hear that club hit the ball. So he's hit the ball first. And I, I kind of flinched and think about that ball's in the water. It takes about three or four stops or hops and stops about a foot from the, just puts the brakes on. We were walking up to the tee and I said, did you mean to do that? And he said, yeah, Stevie taught me. So <laughs> we go to the British Open in July, and I see Sevy down this practice green. So I went up to him and said, hey, Sevy, I explained, how do you do that? And he takes his finger and he waves it at me and says, I don't tell you, it's my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a shot that I, I, I'm trying to think, okay, how did he hit it? How did he, from a buried lie, where did he hit the ball? You, you got to put it right on the 
inside the the explosion, the sand, you got to be on the ball with a hard swing to get the spin. How would you ever hit that with the water on the other side? You know, kudos to Greg for hitting the shot, but I, I'd never think of that kind of shot. I wouldn't have the confidence to play it. Hell, we really appreciate you being on. It's, uh, I told Chase all along, I've had utmost respect for your game and you as a person and, uh, you're, you're a true champion. You're, you're what, uh, the champions tour, uh, uh, the name is you are a champion, not just as a player, but as a man and as a, as a family man. So, uh, we really appreciate you being on the show. Well, Hal, I appreciate those words. And, uh, you know, we've always gotten along. We, we think a lot alike and I appreciate it. Chase, thanks for putting up with me and asking some really good questions. I think we all can learn from this discussion today. Thank you, Hal. Thank you very much for coming on. And, and I will back up. Hal mentioned multiple times that he really considered you for the Ryder Cup. He told me that I've been with him for five, six years now, and he mentioned your name a bunch. So that was that well, was a true story. If he would have said, would you? I'd have said, you got to be kidding. Hell no. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't have said hell no. <laughs> You're on your hey. own with this one, buddy. <laughs> oh, no. You'd, you'd have been right there with red, white, blue on. I know you. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, hey, hell, if, if you if you'd have been on the Ryder Cup, he'd have paired you with Tiger all three days or two days, and he'd have, it'd have saved him a lot of uh, it'd a saved lot me of, a lot of grief. Yeah, <laughs> I'd have been a lot of back slapping. You know, you got away, Tiger. Go get him, buddy. You got him. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? I've learned from a lot of my mistakes, and I guess that would have been one of them right there. It was made with good intentions. If they could have become friends and. Uh, uh, golf would have been the big winner in that deal, but uh, we how was a big loser in that one? Deal. Well, let, let me ask you this, Al, before we sign off, did you do your best? I did my best, I did the there best I could. That's all I want to hear. That's that there's that's success, then I don't care how other people measure it. You, you did your best, therefore, you, you did all you could do. Thanks, Al. gentlemen. Amen. I appreciate it. Thank you. Be the right club today. Yes!